So reading the Bible is like going on a sled ride with Calvin and Hobbes. It's filled with twists and spins, ups and downs, fast then slow, and often encountering obstacles that just cause you to spill out so that you're never quite sure you're gonna get to the destination. We would like reading the Bible to be something that is paved with freeways, right? A freeway was kind of the antithesis of a Caleb, of a Caleb, my son, (laughs) Calvin and Hobbes sled ride, right? We come to the Bible thinking it's going to be or it should be linear, right? The freeway, this kind of ode to the contemporary lust for efficiency, a straight, wide road that you travel down very fast as you barrel through the countryside with fueling stations and food stations conveniently placed so you can fill up both your body and your car without taking much time and boosh, keep going. But I find that when I get off the freeway, take the two-lane country highways, up and down hills, around corners and turns, that I actually like it better. If I make the time for that, it is a completely different experience. I come to know the place I am driving through. I come to a town where I have to stop once, twice, three times. I eat at a local restaurant. I talk to local people. It's a part of the allure, actually, of Ragbri, right? That starts today, as you ride your bike off and through off the beaten path, Iowa and you come to know it in a way that you never would have known it otherwise. Now, when we think about these two metaphors for travel, most people who interact with the Bible, especially in the contemporary world, and who teach the Bible to the rest of us, most of us try to make freeways. We try to smooth over the rough patches, fill in the potholes, make the curviness straight. Except for Jesus. Jesus seems totally not put out by the complicatedness of the story that he inhabits. And Jesus actually says, yeah, I'm going to lean into making it hard. I am going to produce stories that will perplex you, that will confuse you, that will frustrate you, that will make it hard, challenging, that will require effort and a commitment of time on your part to extract the meaning that I've put into them. I say all that as a preamble to the message today because the the words from Jesus that I'm going to present to you are just filled with perplexity, with complicatedness. They produce, at least in me, exasperation, which I found at the end to be an important component of getting out of it what I think Jesus meant for me to get and what I'm hoping to share with you this morning. So we'll get to the what Jesus is talking about. But I also want you and I to pay attention to the how, to the what's it like to get from Jesus, what he means for us to get. Because I think it is an essential component for us learning from him, for us receiving from him. He makes it intentionally complicated, difficult, perplexing, circuitous, all sorts of things. Okay, 
So the story we're reading comes from, I, I have been paying attention in my own reading, my interact, interaction with the Bible with this section in the middle of Luke where Jesus is on a journey, right? So he is actually going somewhere. He is going to arrive at some point not too far down the road in Jerusalem. There's a fraughtness to the journey, right? Everybody thinks something's going to happen when he gets there. Some people think something good, Jesus is going to take over and it'll be wonderful. A lot of people think something bad, he's going to be killed. And on the way, he encounters a lot of obstacles. We're, we're fresh off a couple of stories where Jesus heals two people with pretty significant infirmities on Sabbath in their version of church, and it gets, in tr gets him in trouble with the religious establishment. This story immediately preceding this one, he's, he is the guest of honor, which means the guest of scrutiny, at a dinner with a bunch of self-important men and what Jesus does is call them out publicly for their rivalrous, antagonistic behavior. Okay? Nonetheless, people seem pretty enthused about him. And that's where we pick up our story. It says, and many crowds journeyed along with him. And turning, he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and even their own soul as well. They cannot be my disciple. So quite the opening, right? <laughs> we'll get to the whole hate thing in a minute, but my first reaction to this is, Jesus, I think you're misreading the crowd. <laughs> right? First of all, anybody trying to do the kind of thing Jesus is doing here, build some enterprise. So whether you're doing it politically or in business or in this case in religion, what you want is a crowd. Like, we would give everything to have produced a crowd following us along, and we'd know how to relate to the crowd. <clears throat> we would sign them up. We would get them on our email list. We would add them to the number of followers that we can claim we have. We would send them a follow-up email, 15% off your next miracle. <laughs> right? We would do everything we can to hang on to the crowd. But we would also understand the crowd. When Jesus says, blah, 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 cannot be my disciple, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think that's the aspiration of most of the people there. Most of the people in crowd following somebody that they admire or someone who has power or resources just want things. If I'm in a crowd following you because I think you have something, I just want you to give it to me. And I want to know what I have to do to get it from you, whether it's money or prestige or power, influence, a seat at the table in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. And I think a disciple is a fundamentally different kind of thing than I want something from you. To me, a disciple who has identified a person who they really, really admire, a person who is producing a kind of effect in the world. And a disciple says, I want to become you. Truthfully, I want to internalize you so that I can then produce that same effect in the world. Right? It's like a life-altering realization. I am turning my life in a different direction because of who I see you to be, and I am committing myself now to taking you into me, to learning who you are, how you think, how you feel, in as close a way as I possibly can, so that I can then, from within myself, replicate that in the world. And again, my guess is that not many people in the crowd would have had that aspiration. 
And so then Jesus tries to solve the problem, like identifying obstacles to that aspiration that not many people have, by offering this suggestion of hating a very particular group of people, right? So the first strangeness of this instruction to hate is it's not very general or diffuse. If Jesus was just saying, yeah, you kind of need to extract yourself from socialness, that'd be one thing, but he just ticks through first-degree relatives. <laughs> I mean, really, you need to hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters, Something will wait. So Jesus, I don't think Jesus has just thrown out the Ten Commandments in you know, the center of which sits honor your father and mother. Jesus, we follow him in his life. He had some tense moments with his family, but he also loved his mother, made sure she was going to be taken care of after he left. His brother turns out to become one of his most passionate, effective disciples. And even just the instruction of hate coming, Jesus is like love, you know? He's Mr. Love, instructing us to love and to be kind. And even if we don't love, we're at least supposed to be kind of peaceful. You know, I think about myself and my family. <clears throat> it's, my guess is most of us would say, you know, mine too. I love my mother, I love my father, I have a sister and a brother, and it's not like things are perfect. My brother and I had sibling rivalry when we were young, but I have worked across the course of my life to kind of fix that. <laughs> and to the degree that disturbingness from my family affects my sense of peacefulness, or to the degree that I feel frustration or continuing resentment, I go to therapy, right, so that I can let go of that. But here Jesus is saying, yeah, you need to hate them. And so, so Jesus, like, if I don't feel hate, do I need to produce that emotion towards them? And again, how does this fix a problem? In what way is this a solution to a problem for an aspiration that I'm not even sure I have? Jesus is undeterred, though, by my perplexity. He goes on, Whoever does not bear their own cross and come after me, they cannot be my disciple. <sighs> so the cross, right, it has come to be the central symbol of Christianity. It is a religious symbol through and through. It is associated with Jesus. It is the, the icon that sits at the center of our faith. But of course, it wouldn't have been so in the time of Jesus because it hadn't become his symbol yet. The cross in the time of Jesus would have represented, would have symbolized, would have embodied, like in practical reality, the most powerful rejection of a person by the state, by civic governance. So the Holy Roman Empire implemented the practice of crucifixion. And they did it for folks who were criminals, like who had committed really, really bad crimes. But it was also used against people who were perceived to be a threat to the state people who had committed treason or accused of committing treason, groups of people who were perceived as being at odds with the agenda of the state, undermining the state, fomenting rebellion against the state. And so to take a cross, like to embrace the cross, 
would have meant that you were publicly decrying your allegiance to the state. You were publicly extracting yourself from civic governance, from that whole system. You would be saying, I've examined it and found it wanting. The benefits do not outweigh the cost of my participation. I want to be able to speak against the state. And so I begin to hear Jesus. So first of all, he continues to lean into this whole disciple thing. And so I become aware that on his journey, he is heading to Jerusalem. He knows the end he's going to meet there. He's trying to produce an organization that will last, that will exist after he's gone. And so whatever is going on in the crowd, I think Jesus is concerned, is desiring those who will be committed to him, those who will go deep, those who have seen him, who understand him, and who are willing to take him in to themselves, to learn his ways, his thoughts, his behaviors, not just to get stuff from him, but to live him out into the world. But Jesus is ticking through. He's beginning to identify the things that will stand in the way of you accomplishing that. So here's one, allegiance to systems of power, to those systems that you inhabit. Jesus is saying, yeah, that won't work. If you do that, what that requires of you will be in opposition to what it will take to be my disciple. And so then I flip back to the first thing, too, the hating the family, hating your first-degree relatives. I don't think Jesus is talking about working up an emotion. My wondering is, Jesus, are you going after that most primal social setting that I inhabit, that most formative thing of my identity? No matter what other systems we come to inhabit, work systems, education, friendship, peer groups, ethnicity, you know, all the components of identity, it is always going to be the case that your primary family will be the thing that most shapes you. And so I begin to wonder, Jesus, is this yet one more thing where you're calling me to examine it and to push against it, to not sort of happily inhabit it? So lovely. <clears throat> but then Jesus goes on to tell a couple of stories that just push the perplexity off the charts. So here they are. He goes on, for which of you wishing to build a tower does not first sit down to estimate the cost, whether you have enough to complete it, so that when you have laid a foundation and are unable to complete it, those watching you should not begin to mock you, saying, this one began to build and was not able to finish. <laughs> or... What king journeying to another king to engage him in war does not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who is coming upon him with 20,000? And if not, he will, while he is still far off, dispatch an embassy to sue for peace. Okay. So my first reaction as I'm trying to make my way through this is, Jesus, you're still misreading the crowd. Because I'm... I'm guessing, you know, most of his crowd would have been low-income folks scrabbling together a living, trying to eke it out, hoping that Jesus will offer something better. They're not going to be people on the front edge of building towers, right? Not many of them will have started to engage in this sort of grand civil engineering project. And then Jesus does this thing as he's describing the tower builder and the king that he often does, where he presents a person with the veneer of reasonableness, as if it represents 
humans in general, as if it represents humans in the crowd, when it takes a second to realize, no, none of us behave that reasonably, right? <laughs> none of us actually do what Jesus is saying the reasonable person would do, so building a tower, right? <clears throat> a tower is like the most self-absorbed monument to yourself that a person can build. That's what it is. <laughs> you build a tower, and whatever it's sort of putatively for, it's really, I'm awesome, look at the tower I built, and often you'll name it after yourself, and so nobody, when they go to build a tower, reasonably estimates the cost. We hide the cost. We minimize the cost. Because if somebody knew how much it was going to cost, they wouldn't pay for it. Right? The first thing that happens, we have a lovely hospital being built in North Liberty by UIHC. <laughs> right? And the government signs off on it. Oh, a lovely tower. Within a year... Oh, it's actually going to cost 33% more. Nobody reasonably estimates the costs of the towers that they're going to build. And then you have this king going to war. It is the most misguided, messed up story of going to war that you can imagine. So first of all, just like building a tower is a self-absorbed endeavor, going to war. We all know in this day and age, with the wars raging around us, no wars are reasonable. They are not outcomes of rational decision-making. A king goes to war because the king is either under threat and needs to create a diversion, or because the king has been slighted and can't stand being slighted, so off to war we go. And in this case of going to war, Jesus presents a king, so this is a story, the king says, I'm going to go to war. The king, rather than sort of considering it before he goes off, tallies up the troops halfway there and says, oh, I've got 10,000. They've got 20,000. I should surrender. It is the most baffling, bizarre story of going to war. And so I hit this, and I'm perplexed, and I'm thinking, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? What do you want me to get from this? It cannot be how to reasonably build a tower or how to count the cost before you go to war. What I come to wonder, because of the things that have come before this in his list, Jesus encounters people who want him for themselves. Right? He gets this from his disciples. Who's going to be greatest? Do we get to win the war now? And so I hear Jesus saying, oh, you will come to me because you think you will out, you'll get out from this the ability to build a tower to yourself. I will help you make yourself awesome. You will win your battles. And Jesus saying, no, oh, if you want to go all in with me, that cannot be a part of it. This is not about you successfully building towers to yourself. This is not about you successfully heading off and waging war against your enemies. He finishes the little section with, So therefore, no one of you who does not bid farewell to all your own possessions can be my disciple. So again, I pay attention to the illogic. It just bothers me. The first thing I hear is, wait a minute, are these guys who have lost everything to build a tower or go to war examples for us? Like we're supposed to lose all our possessions in the way that they did? <clears throat> but again, I think Jesus is just trying to drive home one more arena of commitment in which we're embedded. 
our commitment to our possessions, how we form identity out of inhabiting material things and materialism. So, I had been, I have been paying attention to this passage. The way I work, and I get that not everybody works this way, is I can't let go of the things that bug me. Like the illogic, I just can't gloss over it. It sticks in me. I, I work it, I pay attention to it. I have the belief that in the text, that it's a faithful representation of something Jesus actually said, and the writer is doing their best to be true to that, and that Jesus means for me to get something out of it. But the last thing he's going to do is make it easy. You know, if, <laughs> if we had an app, the Jesus, the Jesus GPS guide to the Bible, it wouldn't just restrict freeways, they wouldn't be there. <clears throat> and so I find myself with these stories. My experience is I'll be running down a path and I'll think I'm onto something and I'll get to the river and the bridge is out. And I'll turn and I'll go back and then there'll be a snowstorm and then I get to a gravel rutted road that nobody's driven for 10 years and it's like, ah! And I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think that's how it's supposed to work. And I sometimes have a little misgiving. Even here I am on a Sunday morning taking my discombobulated journey and presenting it to you in some linear fashion, which I feel good about. But I think that... What happens for me is in my exasperation, in my frustration, in my railing at Jesus, in my readiness to give up, my whole self becomes engaged. This is not a PowerPoint presentation, nicely outlined and dialogued that just presents information. My emotions become involved. My body becomes involved. My, I become... <laughs> just wholly committed to the interaction with Jesus, even though it's at 2,000 years distance. The way he writes, the way he communicates, engages my whole self. And so those little pieces come into place. And I don't know for sure that I'm correct. It feels true. It feels resonant. What I feel Jesus trying to produce in me, I feel the tug towards being a disciple. Like, oh, this is actually an option for me. This is an invitation from you to me. You think that I could engage with you more deeply like this. Oh, here's what it might take. And so I find myself being transformed into what I think Jesus wants for me through how he communicates it. And I wouldn't get there, but for making the time, for doing the wrestling. And here's the outcome. Jesus says this. This is a phrase that's often just sort of cut off, separated, because I think we have the sense that the writers putting together the Jesus stories, there were some catchphrases that would show up uh, you know, at many different places. And so the writer, the writer kind of has a list of the catchphrases. He's got to work them in, but at the end, when he's finished the story, he's still got four of them left. And so he just kind of puts them into a paragraph. Uh, you know, be kind to others, store up treasure in heaven, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So it's often done with this phrase, but I think it flows from the story. It says, Jesus says, salt is a good thing then. But if salt too becomes insipid, so tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is fit neither for soil nor for manure. They throw it outside. Whoever has ears to, to listen, let them listen. 
And so I have this feeling like, oh, Jesus, I think what people perceived in you is as you went through your troubled world, you invigorated it. You brought it to life. You made things that were tasteless, flavorful, things that were weak, things that were plain, that were uninspiring. You inspired them. <laughs> it's, it's a truism of cooking, at least mine. If somebody says, what does this need? It's either salt or chocolate. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If you taste something and it's bland, you just add more salt. And <gasps> all of a sudden, the whole thing comes to life. And so I have that sense of, oh, Jesus, you're looking for disciples. What you see yourself doing as you travel through the world is this enlivening. And it requires an extraction from a pushing against all the things that constrain us. All the social settings, the social containers in which we are embedded. Our commitment to ourselves, to our own awesomeness. Our inhabiting civic systems of power that for most of us produce benefit. Our inhabiting our possessions. Jesus is like, what I am bringing to you, what's in me, the systems, ideas, what you perceive producing the goodness, all those things are antithetical to this. So you will need to do the work. If you want to replicate me in your world, if you want to season your world, instead of, you know, instead of not, this is what you need to do. So I want to give us just a minute as this comes to a close for reflection could be in a number of directions. It could just be a, a commitment to letting Jesus talk to us in the way that Jesus wants to talk to us. It really requires time, effort, complexity, mental energy. It could be, as I've ticked through these different systems that we inhabit, if you feel that allure, like, oh, I kind of would like that, Jesus. I kind of would like to replicate you from within me into the world around me. What is it that's obstructing you? What of those things stands out to you? So Jesus, we give you this moment. I, I long to be one who seasons the world around me. Um, to produce liveliness, flavoring, illumination, brightness, all the metaphors you choose. I hear that, I feel that tug. Help me to lean into that. Help me to lean into how you speak to us. And if there are any particular systems that we inhabit that you want to highlight to each of us here this morning, Jesus, we just give you this, uh, these few moments.